0: Welcome to Living Hope Podcasts. If you want to learn more about Living Hope in our ministries, you can find us online at livinghopecrc.ca. We hope you appreciate today's message. I invite you now to open up your Bibles to James chapter 5. And that can be found, I think, on page 1,882 in your Bibles, 881. Now, we are in our final two messages in James right before our Advent series, and before uh, this message, I just want to read an excerpt from one of our Advent booklet writings. Uh, We were putting them together, and I noticed Elisa had put a note um, about the visuals that we have, um, that we've had behind us, and I figured it would be good to to read that out before... um, these visuals disappear, uh, so that you have some time to consider what they are. So she writes, I hope that you've noticed the panels that were up here for this series in James. I hope that you were drawn deeper into a conversation with God through them. With staff, we were discussing the series undivided, and the first thoughts that came to my mind were two colors, so tangled up in different points of being, but slowly, through work and the grace of God, becoming one color. Now, um, also in our visuals, we had um, this one, but we've also had uh, the visuals integrated into our slides where between our slides, we've always had these two pieces of of string or, or pieces of yarn in there. And she also notes that this image is pieces of yarn cut into two, and as a knitter, um, knowing some of the properties of yarn, um, I I brought this little piece with me here, um, that if you kind of rip it apart, um, you can actually uh, bind it back together, if you have a little bit of um, dampness, hopefully this actually works, And, and you rub them together, and afterwards, supposed to, um, kind of be put back together, that they are weaved um, back into one again. That's not a bad way of actually looking at um, our sanctification, the the way that God works into us, the way that God carries us into undivided living. It's through God's working in us, through the work of His hands, uh, sometimes often painful work. Uh, that we are being weaved into this undivided whole. So James, uh, we've been following this line of undivided, that that we're not to be divided between the things that we believe and the things that we do, that this is meant to be done as one, kind of this whole, consistent unit. So with that reminder, uh, let's come before God in prayer. Our Lord and our God, Now, as we hear your word, fill us with your spirit, soften our hearts that we may delight in your presence, sharpen our minds that we may discern your truth, shape our wills that we may desire your ways. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. I'll put the string away. James chapter 5, verse 7. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, My brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you will be condemned. Uh, The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in this passage that we just read... There's repetition of a few things, and one of them is this note about the Lord's coming, that the Lord's arrival is near. And and when we look at that sort of thing, I just want you to be aware of the different pictures that might come into your mind alongside those words. What kind of images come into mind when we think of Jesus coming as the judge? One of the things that I think at least I've been kind of conditioned to think about Is this image of fear? This whole idea of Jesus coming as judge can be simply used as a a scare tactic to get people to come to church. Also, of note um, is that, like every 30 or 40 years or so, there's a book or, or a fiction series that has some sort of vision of what the end times will look like. When I was younger, I think around grade two or so, uh, the Left Behind, the first Left Behind series uh, book came out. And so that kind of was part of my education, my growing up. We, whenever I was in Bible class or through Bible college, uh, professors would turn back to that or teachers would turn back to that and say, well, that, that picture isn't what we actually find when we look into Scripture. You, we have this um, kind of propensity within us to inflate these images that we find in Scripture, uh, to turn Scripture into something that it's not saying. Uh, People often let their imaginations uh, get guided by the fears that they might have and kind of seeking their own answers, but in the meantime, they they miss the point. Uh, James here, I think, gives us, and throughout his whole book, gives a nice counterbalance to those sorts of ideas. Looking at our passage, the Lord's coming is not about fear, but it's about patience. It's about putting us at ease. We are to be a people who are strengthened. It leads to us standing firm because that we know that God is coming. We don't need to grumble because the judge, the one who is setting things right, is standing at the door, and the judge is near, and that gives a sense of joy. It gives a sense of peace. It enables that person to be patient in the midst of, of suffering. In a world that knows so much suffering, this is something that is good. When speaking to God's people, the coming of the Lord Jesus is something that's meant to still the fears. And give a sense of peace. What might stand out to you, though, in this is the proximity. It says the Lord's coming is near, and the judge is standing at the door. It's, it's imminent, it's, it's coming soon. James is making a statement about the, the time that we are living in, something that we share with James's readers. We live in a time where we have this constant awareness. Of God's coming. And this, by the way, is, is really important for understanding James as a whole. This is a theme that comes out throughout all of James. The whole letter uh, is, is written with this as an assumption. So I, I invite you, if, you have been, if you've been reading through James on your own, to reread all of James or parts of James with this in mind, that James is pointing us towards this kind of end-time hope. This, uh, so the, the whole letter assumes this context where the church is this new end-times type community that Israel had been longing for. Uh, this begins in the first verse where he calls the people, uh, the, the audience of the, this letter, when he addresses them, he calls them the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Um, In doing so, James is actually making a statement about who the Christian community is. This Christian community is the new Israel. The church isn't a new religion, it's not a new tribe, but it is the 12 tribes reborn. And and this understanding is backed up again, if if you're following in your Bibles, in James 1 verse 18, where he calls this new community... The first fruits of all he created. Uh, James is turning to creation imagery to describe what the church is. They are the, the 12 tribes reborn in a way. And notice he doesn't do this um, saying that they will be the first fruits of the new creation, but he's saying what they are. It's this present tense, they are already living into this end time type reality. This is a time where they're at the cusp of God's return, and they are to live their whole lives ordered around the understanding that the Lord's return will set all things right. Now, this whole understanding then pops up all the way through the letter. If you, if you keep on following in uh, chapter 1, you can see in verses 9 through 12, there's this sense of the, the fleetingness. Of wealth, that the riches that people have, they fade like a flower in the heat, that just kind of quickly pass away, and that's put in contrast in verse 12 to the crown of life that's given to those whom, um, who love God. It's picked up again, that same sort of theme around wealth was picked up again in our passage that we looked at in the first six verses of chapter 5. You can find other ways that it's referenced if you just want some pointers Um, in chapter 2, verse 13, or chapter 4, verse 13. uh, There's all sorts of places where this is coming up. It, It helps to understand what James is talking about. But what's astonishing in James isn't just that he keeps on bringing this up, but how he talks about the Lord's coming. Even though James is very much concerned with right action, how we behave, what we do, his argument is not, you better behave, otherwise you'll burn. Instead, James invites people to live into mercy as they have been shown mercy. Instead of fear, he roots himself in a theology of an imitation of God, there to be like the God who is merciful. It's not this uh, frantic working that the, the works that he invites people into isn't just trying to work up into a good relationship with God, but actions are flowing from a gracious encounter from the God who sent his one and only Son to bear the payment of sin on our behalf. It's a posture that actually reminds me of what is in our contemporary testimony, something that we've already read a piece of this morning. And I'm going to read a piece from paragraph 57. It's one of the final paragraphs in this contemporary testimony that we have. And it talks about new creation. It's talking about what happens with the Lord's return. Now, I'm going to invite you to read the part in bold with me. Um, I'll read the first part on my own here. It says, on that day, we will see our Savior face to face. Sacrificed lamb and triumphant king, just and gracious. He will set all things right, judge evil, and condemn the wicked. We face that day without fear, for the judge is our savior, whose shed blood declares us righteous. We live confidently, anticipating his coming, offering him our daily lives, our acts of kindness, our loyalty and our love, knowing that he will weave even our sins and sorrows into his sovereign purpose. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Just to highlight a couple of things in there. First, we have that sense in here that Jesus is the one that will set all things right. And when, he, when we look at what does it mean to set things right, well, that particularly is looked at in terms of justice. You will judge evil and condemn the wicked. Now, with judgment and condemnation, there's, there's a little bit of fear that might seep in, especially if we know that we have done wrong, that that sin is something that is part of us and, and our own lives and that's why in the very next line it says that we face that day without fear for the judge is our savior whose shed blood declares us righteous we've already been declared righteous that is something that jesus has already done and this actually is the basis of our confident living it says we live confidently the knowledge that jesus will set things right brings us confidence that we can go into the day-to-day with. We can go into it as people who know that we belong to Christ, knowing that he will weave everything into his sovereign purpose. Now, for us to understand James, we need to know that we too are people who live knowing that the judge is standing at the door and knowing that that doesn't bring fear, but hope brings us a hope that is bigger than any possible struggle. That's where James is going to direct us. The point of the passage is that we are to be patient, knowing that God will set things right. Now, the danger in that sort of understanding in looking at uh, this end times, God's going to set things right, he's going to take care of everything, is that we look at ourselves and we think, well, then we don't have to do Anything, If God's doing everything, what's left for us to do? But James' example makes it clear that we are to be active as we patiently wait for God. The example that he begins with, so there's going to be three different examples that he has here. The first one is of a farmer. We are to be patient like a farmer waiting to harvest their precious crop patiently waiting for the rain. Now, I know some people that have done some deeper studies into the uh, book of James, and one of them was from the city, and they were studying with this person from Guatemala who was a farmer, and they were noticing some differences because of their background in how they understood the different passages, and this was one that highlighted the differences more than most. For the person from the city, they looked at this and they are like, oh, like a farmer, just takes a rest and waits for the rain. They just kind of nap. It's really nice for them. And the Guatemalan was like, no, that's not what he's saying. This isn't the waiting that happens. This patience doesn't mean that you're doing nothing. There is so much that happens from the weeding to the tilling and the fertilizing and tending to the different plants as they grow. They're still doing their part. They're doing everything that they can to make sure that the crop is set for success. What they're patient for is what is outside of their control. No amount of work that they can do can make it rain. So so the picture of the Christian life is something similar here. We can't make Jesus come back any more than a farmer can make it rain, but we are called into that kingdom work, doing what we can towards God's purpose in the world. Uh, far from passivity, far from just kind of being complacent, this image is one of active work. James gives this encouragement at the end here too, that, that you too are to be patient and stand firm. Uh, that language of standing firm is one of strengthening your hearts. It it is something that is actually to bring a deeper resolve into the work that we are to continue doing with that full confidence that God will bring all into completion. So that's kind of the ideas around it. But what does this actually look like? Are are there kind of some practical um, examples that James brings to us? Well... Thankfully, he does. He gives some actually real practical advice in how to live into this sort of patience. The first one is, don't grumble against one another. Um, This might be a a bit of a a strange place to go for some of us. That might not be the first thing that we think of when we think of patience. But this is actually quite consistent with James. If we remember back to James chapter 3, James has some pretty strong language towards how we speak is important, how our our tongue can be the root of all sorts of different types of evil. And he continues in this emphasis here, and and we'll see that um, actually all of the examples that he gives has to do with speech in some way. And sometimes when we we read through James' uh, pieces, will look like they don't really belong, so uh, verse 12, we won't look at it that much more uh, in detail, um, but in verse 12 of chapter 5, um, he's, talk, he's quoting the words of Jesus, all basically verbatim there, and he is doing so with the mindset that what we say with our words is important. We need to have a wholeness. We, have, we need to have consistency in there. And there's, there's a, a logical progression that I just wanted to make a note about. So in watching our words here without grumbling... He's kind of pointing out that, I don't know, if, isn't it kind of easy when things aren't going that well to grumble? And more than just grumbling, it says grumbling against each other. Isn't, isn't it easy when things aren't going well to blame other people? Maybe it just makes you a little bit more on edge when you're called into that patience. We can get a little bit loose with our words. Uh, James is speaking to a community that knows injustices. They know what it's like to be frustrated. They know what it's like to be tempted just to grumble against one another. He's saying, don't be grumblers in the midst of our challenges. And the word grumble is is a pretty um, specific word that James is turning to that should have us thinking back to a, a story in the Bible back in Exodus, this is what the Israelites did as soon as they got into the wilderness. Uh, they're, they're saved by God for this miraculous thing and then as soon as they're out there, what do they do? They grumble and they murmur and complain. They, they lack the maturity as the people of God that don't have the trust that's needed to say that God will actually complete his work. He'll bring them into salvation. The grumbling in Exodus shows up in being words against other people. Specifically, they're blaming Moses and Aaron. They're saying, why did you take us here? We used to have at least full stomachs when we were in Egypt as slaves. Now you've just kind of left us out here to die. The, the blame is on you. And I think we kind of know that tendency. When things are tough, it's easy to blame others with our hardships. When we're suffering, it becomes a whole lot easier to say things that we shouldn't, things that we might regret later. And James gives the warning not to grumble against each other. Don't blame. Don't judge. When they do this, they're actually showing themselves worthy of judgment. They aren't acting with the generosity and mercy that they're meant to live in. So that, that gives kind of the what not to do in the, in the practical advice. But James actually gives two examples of, that are a little bit more positive. This is how we are actually to live. And the two examples of patience are the prophets and Job. And I want to look at both of those ones, um, highlighting with the prophets how they are the ones who speak truth to power so it's, it's the way that they use their words. And the other one for Job is Job's persistence in prayer. Again, how Job is using his words, not grumbling, but bringing them before God. So James begins with the prophets here. They were people who waited for God, or that didn't just wait for God to do his thing. Uh, they spoke to the ones who were in charge, and they pointed out the evil that was being done, even if it meant putting them into danger. Uh, a classic example of this is from First Kings uh, chapter 21. Uh, this is a story where Ahab, uh, one of the kings in Samaria, He notices by his palace there's this wonderful vineyard, great land, and he thinks, I would love to tear that up and just make a vegetable garden. It's nice and close to my palace. It'll be super convenient. So he asks the owner, can I just have your land? And the owner's like, no, this is ancestral land. This means a lot. You can't have my land. And Ahab is super sad about it. Um, He is so sad that his wife notices, and she says is this how you act as the king over Israel? Cheer up. I'll get you the vineyard. So uh, she's not a good person in this. Even though she's inviting him to cheer up, um, she does this through a terrible way in having the owner of the vineyard killed. And he gets to have his vegetable garden. And and what, what are the people to do in this instance? The people, they kind of see what's going on, but no one's willing to name this injustice. You're not going to mess with the king who just did that sort of thing. But in the midst of this, God calls Elijah to go kind of face-to-face with the king and to speak of the sin that has happened. He represents someone that comes with boldness to speak God's truth, who could name the injustice even though it might cost him something. That's kind of the the persistence of the prophets that we have. And that's the sort of thing that the prophets did. They were people who spoke in God's name, saying that this is is the type of living that God wants from his people. He wants us to act with justice and care for the poor, and here, you're doing the opposite. If you want some of the um, content of kind of what the words of the prophets actually were, uh, you're in luck that the Bible has a lot of that in there, from Isaiah and Jeremiah to the, the minor prophets. Uh, there's, there's one that I'll just highlight so that we can get a sense of, of the strength of the language that's found in the prophets. And I'm going to be looking at uh, Amos in Amos chapter 5. Uh, so some background about Amos. Um, He's a farmer, so there's a nice little link there. Uh, He's a farmer of sycamore fig trees. He's also a shepherd. And he's someone that knows, he's, he's just very keenly aware of the injustices that are taking place on an economic level. And he speaks really strongly into that. He sees how people are being exploited from their property, how they're being exploited in legal and business terms. He sees how the poor person basically comes off worse every time an issue comes up. He's seeing that the people of God aren't living faithfully. A commentator notes, um, kind of describes Amos this way. He says, when Amos turned his gaze on the church, he found a religion that was very religious, which adored that, um, what was traditional but which had shaken free from divine revelation. So they they appeared religious, but they weren't listening to what God was saying anymore. The religious centers were well attended, offerings were happening, music was keenly studied, so the the synagogues were full, uh, the singing was loud, yet the people had no attention to what God was actually calling them towards. Uh, listen to Amos' words here as they're recorded in chapter 5. This is God's words spoken. In Amos, he, says, he has God saying, I hate, I despise your religious festivals, I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. So, really strong words here from the prophets. He's calling for justice, for for undivided living, to kind of put it in terms of James. In James 5.11, it says that God is the one who is full of compassion and mercy. They are to live with an outflow of that. They are to be steeped in God's grace so much that it overflows into their lives. That they are people that have righteousness flowing out like a never-ending stream. The prophets were truth-tellers. They don't shy away from injustices. They don't simply turn a blind eye to the hurts of the world, saying quietly to themselves, well, one day God's going to deal with it, so I don't have to do anything. They speak truth to power. They seek meaningful social change, caring for those who are hurting. In doing so, they don't grumble and murmur, they're not placing the blame. They're calling people to live in the same way that James calls people to live. To care for the widow and the orphan. James is, is giving a model of imitation here. That we too are to be people like the prophets who persevere in speaking truth. Who don't simply play the blame game when we see things going wrong but we speak out against the wrong that's happening. The patience and the perseverance that the prophets had was their persistent reminders in the face of power. This, this wasn't a passive waiting that they were doing. Uh, to put it in terms of the, um, our world belongs to God here, knowing that the judge is our savior who's shed blood declares us righteous, we live confidently. We live confidently like the prophets who spoke boldly in the name of the Lord. Uh, The other main example that uh, James gives us is Job. Now, I don't know if you've read uh, Job recently, but it's kind of an interesting choice uh, for patient perseverance, Uh, because Job isn't one that was um, too quiet in the midst of his sufferings. If if you're familiar with the book of Job, I I think most people, um, if they've looked at Job, they can remember the story, this general story of how uh, Job has all this suffering that happens in his life, But all of that is captured in the first two chapters of Job, and Job is 42 chapters long. That means there's 40 40 whole chapters of this outworking, of this kind of lamenting all of the sorrows that he is going through. Listen just to a sample of what Job sounds like, this, this paradigm of patience. This is in the beginning of his laments in Job chapter 3. He says, May the day of my birth perish. And that night, said, a boy is conceived. That day, may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. Uh, He he goes on. Like, that's even beyond this page. There's a whole chapter that's simply saying... I wish I was never born. My, my suffering is so deep that I wish that never happened. So clearly, in the midst of suffering, whatever this patience looks like, whatever not grumbling looks like, our examples permit us to name our sorrows and to bring them before God. What's important in Job, though, is found in Job chapter 2, verse 10, where he says... In all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. Uh, Job is looked at someone who patiently brought things before God. He didn't grumble against other people. He did not judge them, and he did not curse God or kind of end his faith in the midst of his suffering. Much of Job, that 40 chapters, is an honest, crying out before God and sorting this out alongside his friends We have a person that petitions before God. So while the prophets symbolize speaking God's truth to others, calling them into generosity, Job, he is the model of coming honestly before God in the midst of our pain. Job's suffering was immense, but his patient suffering meant that we come before God in prayer. We are are to follow in his example in turning towards God, seeking for justice from the God who listens to our prayers. So the, the challenge here in this second one is to do likewise, to bring our sufferings, to bring our hurts before God. We do with this understanding that the judge is at the door, the one who will set all things right, who will judge evil, who will condemn the wicked, He'll do away with all of suffering, that that will come. And we face that day without fear, for the judge is our Savior, whose shed blood declares us righteous. So, instead, the, to, to kind of wrap up what we've had so far, knowing that God will set all things right, instead of grumbling against each other, In the midst of our struggles, we are to speak God's truth like prophets, advocating on behalf of the hurting in society, addressing people and systems of power. And also, instead of grumbling against each other, we are to come before God in prayer, calling for things to be different. May you find that as you go to him, that you have that reflection that's found in James uh, chapter 5, verse 11, that God is full of compassion and mercy. Let's pray.